Welcome to First Up, it is Ratu, Tuesday the 30th of August. Wow, Kornathan Rarere Aho. Coming up, hundreds of children are among those killed in the worst floods in Pakistan's history. We'll talk with our correspondent in Islamabad. International sharing competitions are back after a COVID-related hiatus. Nationals Deputy Leader talks crime and the government's cost of living payments. And a company is fined after an inflatable slide collapse saw, 11, uh, saw people fall 11 metres at a summer festival. WorkSafe says the company was a serial safety offender and those affected are well Welcoming the news. The front was collapsing into the middle and the back was collapsing into the middle. We were worried the kids would basically get suffocated inside it and parents were panicking. Atamaria, welcome to First Up. Kornathan Rarere, aho. Thank you very much for your patronage this morning. Look, we begin uh, in Pakistan where authorities are bracing themselves for more devastation as the country grapples with catastrophic floods. More than 30 million people, which is about 15% of the country's population, have been affected by the deluge. Meanwhile, nearly 1,000 people have died across Pakistan since June. Just before we came to air, I asked journalist Shamir Balosh who's in the capital of Islamabad, about the scale of the flooding. It's a disaster and it's an underfing. Like, it's not like it is stopped yet, but again, according to the Prime Minister of Pakistan, this flood is at all corners of Pakistan. More than half of Pakistan is underwater. As per the latest report, like the Planning and Development Minister said, it has caused some... 10 billion rupees of loss to the Pakistan. That's amazing. I mean, you, you say they're, what, nearly 50% underwater. Tell me about um, uh, Balochistan. More than that. Tell, tell us about uh, Balochistan, because that's been, what, completely cut off from the rest of the country. What's the situation there? Actually, uh, as you know, that Balochistan is the most empowered province of Pakistan. And at the same time, it covers half of Pakistan. And when it comes to the infrastructure, road, and communication, it has always been very poor without any development in the largest province of Pakistan. So, as the rain it, it, it started hitting Balochistan so badly, it started hitting, uh, hitting Balochistan and Sindh, then other regions. So, it is it started in mid June. It has been ongoing since then. Just imagine two to three days ago in provincial capital of Balistan for more than 24 hours it is rained non-stop so it it has washed away bridges roads even the rail links and buildings so on and so forth and there are many parts within Pakistan Balistan, they have lost communication with each other. So it's very hard for Balistan, like it's more than 75% of Balistan is partially or directly affected. What, what are people's most immediate needs? Of course, they need shelter, they need clean drinking water, and because of the polluted water, as we know, uh, hundreds and thousands of livestock have wiped out on the earth, and, and the, the dead bodies are floating on the water in the canals and rivers, so people are drinking this water and they are falling sick. So they need medical care, they need food, they need cooked uh, food, they need rations. 
How then is aid managing to get to these people? Uh, this is quite an interesting question and very important. I think the the government is not succeeded in this regard yet because from south to north, from east to west, Pakistan is affected by this unprecedented and the worst flood. So the the countries, uh, the National Disaster Management Authority and the Provincial Disaster Management Authority, then despite giving forecasts and warning, they didn't do much. So now the it's a post and the ongoing flood it's very difficult for them to reach as the as i told earlier like the there is no road connection in many parts of the pakistan so they are using helicopters and uh, they've called on military for help and you know that they can't uh, like use all helicopters in all corners of the pakistan for help so it's quite hard to reach then there are many people as i was working on a story yesterday i was told from an official in Balochistan, like a two child, uh, the two children had died from hunger as they they uh, they were completely blocked and cut off from the main population, and they fall sick. And so, they... so, 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 Shamir, I'm, I'm just wondering how people are. Are they are they angry? Are they sad? Are they scared? What 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 is the mood of the people as far as you know? Actually, uh, of course, people are uh, people are just trying to save themselves at this hour. People are literally worried and they're in fear. And they just imagine in Sint province, uh, in uh, what do you call in Daru, so today, more hundred and thousand of people have been in panic. Like they are, there has been breach and 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 an embankment, and the rangers and the authorities and other authorities have asked them to leave the town. So in in such situations, the most of the population, the people are in panic and fear, and whosoever have cars, they are leaving their, their towns, and the poor they are getting stuck because the the transportation cost is double. Yeah. And secondly, one one very important thing, like I think it's not being highlighted the way it should be, a uh, food shortage and a food crisis in the offing. It has already started. Just imagine one kg of onions and tomato used to be for 50 rupees and or 100 rupees. They've crossed some 400 rupees. And this flood is already a devastating impacts on crops, cotton, sugar, and um, in the other, so it 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 is going to be worse days coming ahead. Shamia Balos. It is 11 and a half past five here in New Zealand and you're listening to First Up here on RNZ National. We'll go to the UK now where energy bills, they're sky high and the race for the Tory leadership still going on. It's uh, like one of those long distance marathons that goes even longer. Joining me now from the UK is our correspondent Ali J. Morena Ali. Atamari, Nathan, how are you? I'm very good. Tell us about this, this uh, the cost of uh, energy over there. Is this another one of the crises? And will a change in leadership manage to solve it? Well, it is one of the crises, crises, I suppose, and it's one of the big ones. So this is the constant 
big story and new angles coming out about it as well. So right at the end of uh, last week, just a couple of days ago, we found out that the energy price cap was going to go up to £3,500. So that's meant to be the limit that a household will pay a, a year on their energy bills. So it's um, Ofgem are the agency that announced these things. Uh, it used to be that they change it every six months. But because of that, the price of gas going up so frequently, they've now said they're going to change it every three months. So people will see bills increase in January too. And they're now saying, I've just seen this today, that they're now saying it could go as high as £7,700 a year in April next year. So when this news came out, we were hearing from sort of mental health charities, the Citizens Advice Bureau, um, food banks, all these people everywhere saying that they'd had unprecedented demand. Some people are seeing their bills quadrupling. Um, and the Chancellor, Nadim Zahawi, has said there will be further support. At the moment, it's these staggered payments that people are getting, but they're in the, in the hundreds of pounds. I think the most that you could get per household is around a thousand pounds. And there are so many people who are saying this isn't, this won't be enough. I mean, he said last week as well, um, the Chancellor, that it's not just um, going to affect sort of what you would call low income income earners being badly affected. He said that people earning around £45,000 on a salary of £45,000, equivalent to about £90,000 New Zealand dollars, will be struggling too. So this rise is absolutely huge and these bills are astronomical. So the news today is the former um, Labour Chancellor, Alistair Darling, uh, he's the focus of the attention and that's because he's come out and said bold action is needed. He's talking about small businesses uh, in the UK who have gone through the pandemic and just about made it through the pandemic and are now hitting this cost of energy, cost of living uh, crisis. So he called it a lethal cocktail of high inflation and recession. And this is the guy, I mean, I think you would have seen him as well. He's well known for his um, uh, quite sort of prominent eyebrows too but he was the chancellor in uh, 2008 for the banking collapse as well and he says this this could be the straw that breaks the camel's back really for these small businesses I there's do. hope i mean as you're saying there's hope that the new uh, the new prime minister will do something about it and they're both under lots of pressure but still kind of saying uh, when when i'm in power we'll see what will be done nothing liz trust today said nothing would be ruled out um, but also not really ruling that much in so we have to wait and see really next week what's going to happen because ellie i'm just thinking as you were telling me those prices they just seem incredible and i thought it, it's not even like it's heading into the cold months yet right where people are going to be using the, the heating the energy what what have you found that you yourself i mean do, are you using was it the heat wave that were you were using maybe the i don't know air conditioning more Less so. I mean, when we were talking during the heat wave, there's not a lot of sort of infrastructure in the UK that's set up to deal with the heat wave. So I think that people are kind of seeing that energy costs at the moment, even though it's still hot, it's still warm, you're not using radiators. Um, what I'm hearing from people is that their bills are already going up. But they did a survey um, last week asking people what they thought. what was going to happen and found that people are already underestimating what their bills are going to be kind of thinking oh you know it sounds quite bad but I'm, I'm sure it'll be okay and then it's really this October price rise is going to be the, the first one that really hikes up that price to a level that is unaffordable for so so many people. 
I bet. And and the, keeping with the hot weather, uh, you don't normally hear about avocados growing in the UK, but I understand there's uh, quite a few surprise ones popping up in your nation's gardens. Oh, okay, Ali. I think I think we may have uh, been uh, interneted out there. Uh, that might have gone away uh, for us. Well, well, here we go. Look, hey, uh, after two years of COVID restrictions, it's time um, for another team of proud New Zealanders to put on that black tracksuit top and go overseas in search of glory. In October, the New Zealand team will be hopping across the ditch for the Australian National Sharing and Wool Handling Championships. I asked the team manager, Greg Stewart, how many do you have in a team? How many are going? There's nine altogether. Three machine shearers, which we have two at the moment, Nathan Stratford and Leon Samuels. So the past two winners of the last two years, with the only competition that we got got finished nationally was the PGG Rights and Sweat Nationals. Mm. And the winner of the New Zealand Reno Show and Alex in, in October the 1st will be the third member of the blade, machine shearers. And there's two blade shearers. Alan Oldfield, who won Christchurch last year, and the winner of Waimati this year will be the second blade shearer. We have two wool handlers. The winner of New Zealand Merino last year was Joel Henry, and the winner of uh, Merino New Zealand and Alex this year will be the second one. And there's myself as the shearing judge and manager, and Gail Haitana, who will be the wool handling judge. That's a team of guns that you're taking over there, Greg. Joel Hinati wins all the time, doesn't he? That yes, no, Joel's, Joel's a master. <laughs> He's been gone since he was about 11 years old. Yeah. I first, first seen him in, at Alex way back then. I'm not sure how old he is now. I don't <laughs> want to predict that. But And Nathan Stratford, this is his 15th trans-Tasman team. He's made, so he, he's been around for a while, and but he, he's still going pretty strong. Leon's up and coming. He's won the PGG Rights and Vetmec in 2021, and he's top open shearer at the moment. Hmm. The blade shearers, Alan Oldfield's actually the world, current world champion blade shearer. He won that, in, I think it was in France last last time we had that. Uh, so we're, we're a pretty strong team, and Going to Australia, you need to be pretty strong, especially in the Merino area, because that's their forte over there. Yeah. I mean, it's good to hear there's these, these people coming through, because obviously the, the huge legacies of, you know, going, oh gosh, right back. But I mean, just recently, the last decade or so, we, you know, we thought, oh, there'll never be another David Fagan. And then I know John Kirkpatrick was very good. And then, of course, Big Roland. Because uh, yeah. I'm always pointing to my Hawks Bay guys. So that's what yeah. I'll do there as well. So plenty of those coming through. It was fascinating to me what you just said there, Greg, with you're the judge in this, because. Normally, I imagine, you know, lower grades, you're thinking, well, there'll be the odd nick and there'll be, you know, some, some bad blows like that. These people are just the elite of the elite, Greg. So so how do you, what do you look for to be finicky so that you can do your judging? Well, it's virtually, there's a set standard worldwide now that uh, second cut, what we call a second cut, which is uh, a black strip, 80 millimetres long, on a credit card size, uh, 80 by 80, you'll see that you'll, it's a one stroke. Mm. If they cut it off, it's a stroke. If they leave it on out the back, when we judge the sheep standing up after they've shorn it, it will be counted out there. With the merinos and any sm- small cut, 
that's, we're not trying to do. It's just it just happens. It's part and parcel of it. About a not quite a ten cent piece or a thumbnail size as a stroke, and that's on the board on the fleece when it falls on the in front of you or at the back when it's standing up. So, but the, these fellas are get, they're getting pretty good, and the gear nowadays is. It helps them as well. They're going pretty well. Just having a thought about the non-competition sharing, because I think it might be might be a bit of a busy time there at the moment, but about how many gangs have we still, you know, the sharing gangs, how many of them we still got operating uh, around the country? Is there still plenty of them? Oh, yes, no, there's plenty of them. It's, it's another industry that's uh, screaming out for staff at the moment. I've just been helping out on a property over the weekend where... The contractor, he's got 85 shares going in different sheds all around the, all around Otago and struggling to keep up, keep the wool handlers to work with them. There's not enough wool handlers at the moment, especially around Central in the pre-lamb time. And, and it's been very wet, so all the contractors are probably a week to two weeks behind some of them. So, And with lambing coming up, there's a, bit of, a fair bit of pressure on to get things tidied up. So that's another industry that the, the overseas uh, workers thing comes into play a bit. But, and also the whole, there's not not workers out there that are keen to do it. Well, the very best of them heading across Australia to disappoint Australians. Fantastic. That's team manager Greg Stewart. Just, uh, it's about 22 past five. I'm Nathan Rarere and you're with First Up here on RNZ National. So coming up, a company is fined after an inflatable slide collapse saw people fall 11 metres at a summer festival. And I've got a birthday coming up of a celebrity who actually had a really famous classmate at high school. It's our time now to catch up on news from regional New Zealand now. And this morning we're in Gisborne with the local democracy reporting programme's Matthew Rosenberg and he's got some tales for you. He's been looking into why kiwi fruit growers of the more lucrative golden variety are being told they need to pay significantly more in rates than those harvesting the regular old green kind. It's bad news for, for kiwi fruit growers, Nathan. Why? Um, particularly those of the golden variety in Tairawhiti. Now, we've just had confirmation that their rates are about to go up following a high court decision. Ah. Um, so basically, yeah, so this all kicked off in, in late 2020 when Gisborne District Council decided that licenses to grow golden kiwi fruit, which are very lucrative, I might add, very lucrative variety, mm. should count as an increase in value to the land, i.e. the orchard, and thus justify a rates increase. Now, the council was backed by the valuer general on this, and so, boom, for the rates go up. But as you might expect, the, the kiwi fruit growers weren't too happy about this. So. Especially a, um, a Gisborne grower named Tim Teachin, whose small orchard rose from $1.65 million to $4.1 million in value because of the changes. And then the rates were, were raised at an, at a, well, at a, in, in a similar fashion. Exactly right, exactly right. So um, Teachin went to the, the Land Valuation Tribunal and he actually won his case in February of this year. But that has been trumped by this high court ruling. So it's been a bit of a back and forth. But it's not over until it's over because the New Zealand Kiwi Fruit Growers Incorporated have announced that they will appeal this high court ruling. And the group's chief executive, Colin Bond, said it's an important thing that they do challenge it because it's a, a precedent-setting case in New Zealand. Um, and the first of its kind. Um, also, he thinks that other councils uh, have indicated they'll follow suit and bump up rates. Um, so he's he's keen to fight for the kiwi fruit growers. Um, and there is a lot at stake here. 
in, in 2020, the value of the the Sun Gold variety was around eight hundred to nine hundred thousand dollars per canopy hectare. Um, so you don't even need to have too many hectares to be doing a write off these ones. Yeah, and that's compared to around three hundred to four hundred fifty thousand for mature green kiwi fruit. Other crops such as oranges, avocados, and fajoa normally produced around thirty to fifty thousand per crop per hectare. So that eight hundred to nine hundred is that's amazing. It's, it's big money. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I can see. I can, well, it's it's horrible. I can see both points. I imagine they'll just go back and grow the greens now. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah you've you got another. Yeah, you got another controversy that's going on there. Tell us about the controversy surrounding one of the mayoral candidates, Darren Brown. Yeah, well, things are starting to, to heat up down here with the um, with the election. And uh, look, it's it's exciting times. There's, there's been the highest number of candidates down here in 21 years, so 42 people standing. But uh, with that, we've had a, a couple of uh, wildcards, you could say. So ex-councillor Manu Kedi set up a, a Dropbox encouraging people to share content they've dug up on council hopefuls. And it's safe to say that the screenshots of social media activity have been rolling in and it hasn't bode too well for a, a mural hopeful by the name of Darren Brown, who it's been revealed went to a supermarket in a hazmat suit with a swastika on the front in protest of COVID mandates. Now, that was a couple of years ago, but the evidence is still still there. It's been screenshotted and, and shared on this and it's been uh, doing the rounds. He also made comments about wanting to cut down a 5G tower back in 2020 on social media. And I actually spoke to Darren. Uh, he said he's not a Nazi or a white supremacist. He just wanted to, to make a point about government mandates. He's joined by his, his wife, Jen, who's also running for council. She's running under the general ward. Mm. And she's had a few posts of her own, which has, have, have raised a few eyebrows. I mean, I understand what there's a photo that's also merged from wearing overalls with a swastika and genitalia drawn on it with the words choose freedom over fear. How are we supposed to be expected to believe that he's not Nazi when he's walking around with the massive Nazi logo on him? Yeah, it's not the, it's not the, it's not the smartest move, is it? Especially when you're, you know, you're running for council, you expect that's that's the time when stuff like this does get pulled up as well. So, yeah, I mean, not a good thing to do, and you know, under any circumstances, but particularly when you're you're putting yourself out there and, and running for office like this. His his wife Jean um, made a post comparing her lucky rock to the COVID nineteen vaccine in, in terms of its effectiveness in fighting the virus. Um, she also criticised Deputy Mayor Josh Fahinger for his stance on opposing the Wellington protests. Uh, which she attended. And then you've got uh, Ben Florence, Nathan. Oh, what? tell me about this. Well, he's another candidate standing down here um, who also attended the Wellington protests, and he's shared content on his social media accusing the Prime Minister of having total control of the media. There's another one, uh, Peter Jones. He's expressed concern. There isn't a single party in Parliament speaking for those who think, in quotations here, COVID is a scam. So, yeah, a, a few people have come out of the woodwork. But the good news is that, like I said, there's a very large turnout. The options aren't just limited to conspiracy theorists. And there is some real excitement in the air down here, uh, this ele election, especially with the introduction of the Māori wards. And it's been a long, long time coming. But, yeah, that's going to be really exciting and, and great to see those seats at the table. That's LDR's Matthew Rosenberg in Gisborne.
Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. This is the day of our life we call the 30th of August. Big day for birthdays. Some really good ones in here today. In 1797, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley was born. Now, when she was 18, Mary, her future husband, Percy, and also Lord Byron were sitting around. How good's that? <laughs> uh, having a, a chat, they went, hey, who can come up with the best horror story? Well, two years later, she comes up with a book where everyone goes, you know, Frankenstein. It's called Frankenstein or the Modern Pr- Prometheus is the name of that book. And she totally won that competition, I should say. Yeah. On this day in 1871, Ernest Baron Rutherford of Nelson was born in Spring Grove, which is near, well, near Richmond, near Nelson, there in uh, the uh, Tasman region. Uh, most famous, of course, for his gold foil experiment, which showed that atoms have a nucleus, but actually you looked at that, you know, piece of gold foil and it's, it's, it's mostly empty. Uh, also, he's famous for appearing on the $100 note, which he has done since 1992, and I found out too, he's on the stamps of 10 different countries. There we are. On this day in 1972, which makes her 50 years old today, Cameron Diaz was born, of course, very popular actress. And uh, she went to Long Beach Polytechnic High School with a young fellow that would grow up and be known to the world as Snoop Dogg. There you are. And on this day in 1904, the Summer Olympics were going on in St. Louis. And two Tsvana tribesmen were working in town, Len Tao and also Yamasani. And they said, shall we go in this? OK. So they entered. They became the very first Africans to compete in the modern Olympics. They entered the marathon, uh, and they did pretty well. Tao finished ninth. Mashiani came 12th. Tao would have done better, but he was chased nearly half a mile off the course by aggressive dogs. And that is what happened on this day on August the 30th. It's business. It's business time. That's what you're trying to say. You're trying to say, let's get down to business. It's business time. It's business. Joining us now from our business team is Mr. Giles Beckford. Kia ora, Giles, how are you? Morning to you, Nathan. I'm well, thank you. I'm yeah. Well. Have you run a marathon before? Uh, I've done one in my life. And I'm pound, I'm standing and I'm plotting. And, and, and I think I would, that probably counts for a lot of the problems I have now. <laughs> no, that's great. It's amazing. Uh, I did one, yeah. yeah. Oh, good on you. I, I didn't. Hey, uh, <laughs> I was. Uh, I, I, let me take the initiative here before you ask me. Whether, just that conversation you had with the local democracy reporter, which struck me as you know very interesting, hmm. and you posed the question: Well, you know, how could you not think somebody was a Nazi if they're wearing a hazmat suit with a swastika all over it? Yeah. Uh, and it made me think: Does the logo that people, um, companies, uh, organisations have, does it necessarily? Represent what they really are. Ooh, it's no, that's deep. That's deep philosophical marketing. But yeah, I'd be interested to see what people think. You know, you see a logo there. Do you believe it? You know, person's wearing it. Do you think it embodies what they're thinking? You know? um, and more to the point, why do companies have these sorts of logos in order to be able to? Do they suck people in? Yeah. Do they, do, do they attract buyers and customers? It's just something paint their work vans that colour. That's what I think. 2101, what do you think of Giles, Giles' question there? Now, you, you've got an interesting uh, thing you want to talk about this morning. What do workers want? Well, what do workers want? Apart from, you know, uh, a lot of money and not having to spend too much time in the office, a new survey suggests that more than three quarters want flexible working hours or some sort of hybrid type working uh, as the, their main priority. Uh, they want career development, which leads to a rewards program. And I'm assuming that means 
uh, higher pay, a promotion and the like. They also want regular performance feedback. So those are the top three priorities as we merged in, uh, from the survey uh, being done by uh, a human uh, resources company um, and the local uh, employers group. Um, so, interestingly, it's a survey of 1,200 people nationally, so one that assumes it's got some cred uh, about it. 91% of those who were surveyed uh, had experienced negative physical effects. Tired, can't sleep. Uh, that was just in the past three months, and they put that down to work. And uh, pretty close to that uh, number said so they experienced negative emotional impacts, including anxiety and excessive worrying. So yeah. we've become a more uh, wor- worrisome workforce. Um, people in particular don't like the, uh, the the issue of workplace stress caused by understaffing. Um, and they like bosses or employers who actually show some real care about them and inquire about their well-being and do something about it. So yeah. you know, those, those are the trends emerging, <clears throat> pardon me, amongst what people think. Yeah, Giles, thank you very much for your time. It's an interesting thing that Giles touches on there. I know that the the younger generation, I'm talking to people here under about 25, they're very keen to be told on feedback. They actually self-review really hard, and I've spoken to plenty of sports coaches that say, man, the younger ones, they they really get into the self-reviews. You can hear more from the business team on Morning Report this morning at 10 to 7, but if you are taking your New Zealand dollar to market, this is what you can buy today. 61.51 US cents, 89.18. Australian cents, 61.42 euro cents, 52.55 British pence, 4.251, 85.27 Japanese yen, and 135.74 Pakistani rupees. Uh, we head towards 6 o'clock. It is 22 to 6 if you're listening live here on RNZ National or listening to us on First Up, the podcast. Well, WorkSafe has imposed a $350,000 fine on an inflatable slide company behind a string of incidents and injuries. Health and safety regulators say that JTK Trustee Limited, which trades as Fun Solutions, is putting uh, put people in extreme danger when their slide collapsed at the 2020 Whangamata Summer Music Festival. But this is not the first time that WorkSafe has dealt with JTK, as Tom Taylor reports. The front was collapsing into the middle and the back was collapsing into the middle. We were worried the kids would basically get suffocated inside it. And uh, parents were panicking. Kate Stokes hasn't let her kids play on an inflatable slide in six years. In 2016, she and her children Abigail and Daniel, then three and six, were at an outdoor dining event in Hamilton Gardens. The kids were excited to try out the slides run by party entertainment company JTK Trustees, but moments later, the slide collapsed and ten children fell about ten metres. So I was... <laughs> The kids are way up in the sky, and I mean, my, my kids got off okay, but it, was not, it wasn't a nice um, situation there. Ms Stokes says the children were lucky to be unscathed by the incident, and they've even asked to go back on the slides since. Others have not been so lucky. In December 2020, a dozen people, mostly children, were injured at the Whangamata Summer Festival when they fell up to 12 metres from a collapsing slide also run by JTK trustees. One adult victim broke both his ankles and underwent 11 surgeries. Yesterday, the company behind the incident was sentenced at Waihee District Court. JTK trustees, trading as Fun Solutions, 
was fined $350,000, along with emotional harm reparations of $40,000 and additional reparations of $13,000. Ms Stokes is pleased the company has been held accountable. I guess it makes me pretty happy that it's been taken seriously because it could have been fatal. There's risks in anything, um, but you need a company to have taken all precautions that they possibly can to make sure that your children are going to be safe. If they can't keep that safety record going, they shouldn't be operating. WorkSafe has had 11 prior interactions with JTK, including the Hamilton incident and another collapsed slide at the Masterton A&P show in 2015, which injured six children. WorkSafe says the company failed to learn from its past mistakes and continued to show little regard for health and safety, putting children in extreme danger. Tom Taylor there, director of the company Fund Solutions. Eric Gerritsen didn't show up to court yesterday, could not be contacted by us here at RNZ, but WorkSafe's area investigation manager Paul West was there. That's very disappointing. I mean, we would expect people, especially people involved in entertaining children and families, would be taking the steps that are needed to make sure that what they're doing is safe that people can go have fun, have a really enjoyable occasion, then come back again the next year to do the same thing again. Can you just describe how bad uh, are some of the injuries that uh, people using them have been getting? Well, today in court, it was was very sobering to hear Mr Van Ruen talking about uh, his injuries. This was the the man who was up on top of the slide at the Whangamata Summer Festival when it collapsed. And... uh, He fell about 11 metres onto the ground, landing on both of his legs. Both of his ankles were were fractured. They were were snapped. And then on his left leg, he has got significant leg injuries as well. Nathan, this man has gone through 11 surgeries since this incident. He went up on an inflatable device and came away with over 18 months' worth of of injury and continued pain pain and discomfort. Oh my goodness, what a, what a horrible thing to happen. I mean, from what you found in the course of your investigation, I mean, is it is it fortunate that no one was killed? Because it's such a long way to fall. It can never be discounted 11 metres up. I've dealt with deaths which have occurred much lower, lower fall from heights than this. And it wasn't just Mr Van Ruin. There were 11 other, mainly children, up on the slide as well at the time it collapsed. Seeing there that currently um, inflatable slides, those inflatable slides are in question, they don't have to be registered. I mean, should they be? That would really be a question for for Parliament because there would need to be a change in the, in the legislation. Yeah. There, is a, there is a standard which applies to them and we do expect all of the operators of inflatable devices to make sure that they meet that standard. And that covers things like making sure that if it does deflate, that it's not going to be too quick, that people will be able to evacuate off them, that there's some basic safety features built into them. So so from what you could see was, I'm, I'm just trying to figure out here, is it the equipment or was there some negligence there that led to, you know, this injury in particular and the others? This one here, it was... The slide in question had a number of issues with it. So we found that there were issues with some of the electrical supply. There was issues with the slide itself, that there were were leaks, that some of the anchor points were non-compliant. That may not have been much of an effect on this incident, but when you... When you're holding down a huge piece of uh, inflatable equipment like this, if the winds come up, it can all pay um, play into it. So there was definite equipment failures. 
and then there were supervision failures as well that the staff uh, didn't have the same amount of control over the people as would be expected to limit the number of people on the slide at any one time. This this company, has it shut down? Uh, to the best of my knowledge, no, it hasn't. It is still carrying out um, its uh, amusement device hiring. In regards to the slide in question, uh, my team did put what's called a prohibition notice on the slide, which prevents it from being used in the future. So hopefully that has made it a little bit safer out there. That's WorkSafe's Area Investigation Manager, Paul West. So so just to clarify there, WorkSafe bought, uh, brought the case, uh, but the courts impose any related fines. It is 17 uh, to 6. I'm Nathan Rarere, and you are listening to First Up here on RNZ National. So still to come, National's Deputy Leader on Crime, the Government's Cost of Living Payments, and whether the party would work with Brian Tamaki. The professionals of Morning Report are up after six and for a quick preview of their flagship show, it's Marnie Dunlop. Kia ora Marnie, how are you? Oh, kia ora. I don't know if I'm the um, professional, but yes, anyway. Yes, you are. You're there. <laughs> they're, they're scraping the barrel, mate. <laughs> <laughs> the professional barrel then. There we go. Yeah, exactly. Just, just put you yourself go. in any professional barrel. What's going on today? Hey, look, so we're, we're going to start off with uh, the cost of living payment, which has been described as a bit of a blunder. So uh, we've got, obviously, our amazing Katie Scotcher giving us an overview of how that's all been rolled out and the concerns raised, as well as talking to uh, National Party's finance spokesperson and deputy leader, Nicola Willis, and uh, Minister for Revenue, uh, <laughs> and David Parker. But we're also... Um, we're also going to be talking to uh, the union reps from Kawido uh, about the toilet paper manufacturer, ST, which has locked out the workers at Kawido, uh, at the Kawido mill. And now they are taking them for damages for about half a million dollars. So we'll have the latest on that as well. Wow. Sounds full on. Thank you very much. Uh, Marnie there. Uh, Marnie Dunlop, of course, up after six with you. Well, yes, uh, the National Party is urging the government to apologise after the Auditor-General's ruling on the distribution of payments to help low- and middle-income New Zealanders with the high cost of living. The Auditor-General had been urged to investigate by National's Deputy Leader, Nicola Willis. Now, whilst the Auditor-General concluded that the payments made to ineligible people, and this is the quote, do not constitute unappropriated expenditure, the government should have taken greater care when distributing those payments. Now, some people living offshore received the first instalment, as did former migrants, and in some cases, people who died. So I asked Ms Willis uh, whether she was satisfied with how the government has responded to the public spending watchdog's findings. The government needs to apologise, because what the Auditor-General has made clear is that they acted in haste, and the system they designed for the cost of living payment led to people getting that taxpayer money. And the Auditor-General has said that taxpayers have a right to know how many people were ineligible. And yet the government still hasn't answered that question and only belatedly have made changes to the system to prevent it happening on such a wide scale again. Yeah, I see the, the Revenue Minister, David Parker, say he said that 31,000 people possibly living overseas had received the first $116. So we did some maths really quick, uh, $3.5 million ran about there. Should it be recouped, do you think? 
Well, the, the point is we still don't know if that is an accurate number. What the Auditor General points out in his letter to me is that we don't actually know, and that is unacceptable. And the IRD should take further steps to work out just how big the scale of these issues was. What he also points out in his letter is that all along, actually, those ineligible payments should have been repaid, but that was not the advice that the minister and the IRD were giving. So it's really up to the minister to clear all of that up. And I think what New Zealanders would have preferred was if the money only went to eligible people in the first place. Uh, and that is not what has happened here. Okay, so will you, I mean, you, you've got that now. Will you be seeking further consequences um, for those behind the botch up? Yes, as I've said, I think it's appropriate that ministers apologise. The Auditor General's report makes clear that it was their haste, their speed that led to these problems. Actually, the IRD warned ministers explicitly. They said, look, we can't guarantee that the people will be living in New Zealand. Ministers chose to go ahead anyway. Uh, and as the Auditor General points out in his very own words, he said that good stewardship of public money would have required greater care when designing and implementing the system. So what we have here is ministers who should be good stewards of public funding, not showing the care that I think taxpayers have a right to expect from them. All right. Um, now, your police spokesperson, Mark Mitchell, he, he said that youth crime is increasing, but that's not correct, though, is it? Like, youth crime's down nationally, so why was he calling for more, um, you know, prosecutions? What I understand is that youth crime in some categories has been increasing. For example, the number of ram raids is up around 500% since the beginning of 2018, uh, and we know that the number of younger people under the age of 19 being apprehended for burglary is bigger than other age groups. And this has happened at the same time as there have been halving and prosecutions of young people since 2017, and officials themselves acknowledging that there's been a gap in responding to serious recidivist youth offenders. So National's point is clear. It is that, yes, we don't want to be targeting first-time offenders and minor offenders, but there is a balance to be struck here where there should be appropriate consequences for repeat and recidivist offenders, and the pendulum has swung too far the other way. Well, a lot of those crimes, you don't want to hear them, though, that, you know, the, the burglaries and that, it, they seem like the crime of people that are poor, you know, that, that, that don't have and they need things. So it, has National got a policy to help reduce youth crime that isn't just punishment? Have you got something to help them get them out of that so they don't think this is an option? Well, you know, I think the number one thing we should do, Nathan, is ensure those young people are in school. Because actually we've got soaring rates of truancy across the country in fact, numbers that show more than half of kids aren't regularly attending school. And I'd bet there'd be a correlation between those involved in youth crime and those who aren't at school. And so I think it's really important we give schools the tools that they need to get those kids back in the classroom. And we need a social investment approach, which is about identifying those interventions, whether they're carried out by NGOs, churches, or others, that actually help people get their lives back on track 
over the longer term and investing in those interventions, not simply doing the same things again and again that aren't working, but looking for the things that are genuinely transformational. So I just want you to clear something up for me. So when you say that they're away from school, because I think it's, you know, one of the things is if you're away more than five days in the year, that counts as truant. But you've got all sorts of people isolating. You've got people that are being more careful about colds and, and what have you there. So are those people counted in this or are, this, are these kids that should be at school that are just not going? Well, the statistical definition of regular attendance is attending nine days a fortnight at a minimum. So less than that counts as irregular attendance. And of course, some of those children won't be attending because they're unwell or for other reasons. But the sheer jump in the number of young people not attending school regularly suggests we've got a bigger problem. And I'd put to you that there's probably a cohort of young people who became detached from school during the lockdowns uh, and during the disrupted couple of years we've had who haven't been learning as much and now aren't feeling like going to school. And that's a problem for all of us. That's a problem for our community. That's a problem for those kids' futures. And we owe it to them to get them back to school. But I've got, I've, I know families that have taken their kids skiing for a week uh, during the term. I know ones that have taken their families overseas on a holiday to the islands for a week. Should, should they face the same consequences? Well, what I want to see is kids attending school mm. regularly. And I think that where we have kids who aren't getting those basic literacy and numeracy skills, they're not getting school qualifications, we are robbing them of future opportunities and of future um, livelihoods. So actually we do have to address that in whatever shape or form it comes and we have to use those techniques and tools that get those kids back in the classroom regularly attending and achieving. It's good for them, it's good for their families, it's good for our communities. Yeah. Um, now, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we were told, yep, Sam Offendall report will be a couple of weeks. It hasn't come out. What's what's the delay there? Yes, well, as you know, the reason that we have an independent investigation underway is that we wanted to ensure a fair process. That independent investigation is being led by Maria Jew QC, mm-hmm. and it's very important that she takes the time to do that properly and to take fair process and so she's made it clear she needs some time to provide that and so we're not going to get in the way of her doing that thorough uh, and fair investigation. So are there further incidents of concern that have been put to her? Look, my understanding is it's simply a matter of her going through the natural justice process of ensuring that what information she has, people have an opportunity to respond to and that she's doing a thorough job of that. Okay. Uh, And finally, um, someone else who's been testing the limits of the law lately is is Brian Tamaki. Brilliant publicity stunt to uh, make it look like he was going to do an occupation again, but really it was just launching a political party there. So I guess I've got to admire his hustle in that way. But I'm really hoping that are there any circumstances in which National would work with a political party led by Mr Tamaki? Because I'm I'm trying to find a definite answer out of your leader and we're not getting one. (laughs) Well, look, what we've said is we're not going to play the game where every Johnny-come-lately puts their hand up and says, I want to come to Parliament, that we all go into a pre-election coalition negotiation with them. And look, frankly, I don't think it's very likely that Brian Tamaki will get 5% of the vote, which is what he would need to be someone that we would even be thinking about talking to. And I just can't see that happening. As Chris Luxon said, read between the lines, it's pretty obvious that this is not an individual or a party who will get widespread support from New Zealanders. So no. Well, I just, we're not going to get into that game. I just can't see that. It's not a game, it's a very short word. It's just just yes or no. 
Well, we can't see a circumstance in which Brian Tamaki will be at the, the, the negotiating table with us. That's uh, Nicola Willis, the uh, Deputy Leader of the National Party, to round out this morning's uh, programme. Um, thank you very much for your patronage today. We had uh, a lot of feedback through this morning. Uh, Jeff from Christchurch says, Brian Tamaki is irrelevant. It's only media attention that lets him talk. Uh, oh, that lets him think he actually matters. Um, here's another one. I'm a manager in a very large corporate. Here is what I want. I don't want flexible working. I never want to go to the office again. I can quite happily work from home for the rest of my working life and manage my team via Zoom and other technology. I hate wasting three hours of my day getting to and from an office. Such a waste of time, yet I am now forced to go to the office by the CEO at least three times per week. That one there is from Zane. Uh, another one here, why have National not said anything about those New Zealand companies, uh, about those New Zealand, t- oh, about what New Zealand companies got during COVID that shouldn't have got it? Uh, and another one here, uh, Dennis of Waiohiki says, well, booze and cigarettes are drugs. Drug dealers get raided by their victims. End of story. Okay, there we go. So, uh, yes, thank you very much uh, for your patronage uh, today. Remember, you can download uh, the show and listen to it anytime you'd like on First Up, the podcast. Find it where all the, uh, the good people go shopping for their podcast. It's okay, it's free. And listen to it at any time. Morning Report is next with Marnie Dunlop and Corin Dan from all of us here at First Up. Have yourselves a wonderful day. We'll be back in your ears, uh, Paul Paul.